Nothing like baptisms. Oh, those are great. Thank you so much for being, a, being able to participate in the baptisms. You see on the screens these uh, five words, in it, not of it. That's going to be the theme that we're going to pursue over the next um, number of weeks as we turn our attention to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. But first, uh, a, a background. Just before Jesus left this world, um, he was within hours of his death. He was with his disciples, and he was praying. And they got to hear Jesus pray, and this is what Jesus prayed. Here it goes. He's praying to the Heavenly Father. I have given them, he's talking about his disciples, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Now, obviously, they're, they're human beings, part of this globe called the world or the earth. But their mindset is not that of the world, the culture around them. Jesus goes on. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Not advancing my slide very well here, Paul, if you can help me. Well, let me go on. We'll get it, we'll get it working there for you. I, from the evil one, the next slide goes, They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As I have sent them into the world, I now, as you have sent me into the world, now I send them into the world. That's what Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed that his disciples would be in the world, thoroughly immersed in the culture in which they were placed by God, the Jewish culture of the first century. But he also prayed that they would not take on the worldview and the mindset of the culture around them, which was not the mindset of the worldview of God. In fact, it's a mindset that actually hates God's word. So he prayed that they would be in the world, but not of the world. Now the Apostle Paul made a, a similar statement in Romans chapter 2. This is what he wrote. Do not be conformed any longer to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you will be able to prove the good and perfect will of God. That's what the Apostle Paul wrote. And so the series we're going to look at over the next number of, of weeks is going to be titled, In It, But Not Of It. And the book of the Bible we're going to look at is the book of Daniel. So if you have a Bible, would you open to Daniel chapter 1? But before, uh, as you're doing so, let me give you a couple of reasons why we're going to study the book of Daniel together. Reason number one. Daniel is certifiably one of the greatest human beings that has ever walked on the face of the earth. There's no question about that at all. And G Daniel is without argument. This is not possible that anyone could be better. Daniel is without argument the greatest civil servant that has ever existed in human history, and no one can ever be better than him. Impossible. 
He's the greatest civil servant. Now, many of you here are better civil servants. You work for the federal government, you work for the state government, you work for the county government, or you work for the government of Sheridan. You're civil servants. The greatest civil servant that has ever existed in human history is Daniel. Inarguably, no one else can be greater. How do I know? Because he served several different administrations and two entire empires as the prime minister. There's no one in human history who has ever done that. And he was absolutely perfect in his job. There was not any incompetency. There was no corruption at all. Now, it was Lord Acton who said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Very rarely are great men ever good men. Winston Churchill said, great and good are not found in the same person. You do not find great people who are also good people. Daniel is the rare exception. He not only was a great man, served as prime minister for many administrations, he was a good man, morally impeccable, and he was a godly man who followed God in ways that are unbelievable, so much so that God calls him highly esteemed by God. So the first reason we want to look at the book of Daniel is because when we do so, we're looking at one of the greatest human beings who's ever lived on planet Earth, and we can learn from him. The second reason is because Daniel was not only immersed in a pagan culture, this pagan culture tried to brainwash Daniel, and instead of being brainwashed in this pagan culture, he transformed that culture. We live in an increasingly secular society in the United States of America. And many times as Christians, we're afraid of it. So some of us are hiding our heads in the sand. Some of us are separating ourselves from the culture. Some of us are just capitulating to the culture. Daniel did none of that. He walked straightforwardly into the culture. He was part of it, but he was not part of the mindset of that culture. He transformed the culture rather than being brainwashed by that culture. That's a pretty important thing for us to be able to do. Third reason, Daniel lived his life in three countries, Israel, Iraq, and Iran. In his day, they would be called Israel or Judah, then they would be called um, Babylon, and then Persia. And it just so happens that those three countries are, the, I would say, three of the most important countries in the world today, Israel, Iraq, and Iran. If you look at the headlines in the, in the newspapers, those three countries dominate the headlines. When anything happens in those three countries, the whole world is involved. And history repeats itself. And because the three countries in which Daniel lived are the three of the most important countries in our world, remember, that's where ISIS has its headquarters, I think it's important for us to see how Daniel lived in these cultures. A fourth reason is because for those of you who are interested in, in the future, in, the, in prophecy, Bible prophecy is a very important subject. Much of the Bible is devoted to prophecy. But the bedrock of prophecy, the foundation of all biblical prophecy, the, 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 the platform from which all prophecy in the book of Revelation and other books is built, it all comes from Daniel. He is, I guess I would call, the major prophet of the future in the Bible. So we can see a lot of glimpses into the future by looking at Daniel, because he's the main one who tells us about that. But perhaps best of all, Daniel points us to Jesus. So that's why we're going to look at Daniel as uh, our study over the next number of, of weeks.
I'd like to give you um, some background, first of all. Um, if you want to find out about Daniel, you need to uh, come to grips, first of all, with the times in which he lived. In the year 609 B.C., um, well, I should go back to that. Daniel was born around the year 620 B.C. We don't know exactly when he was born, but that's within a year or two. Daniel was born in Judah, or the southern part of Israel, in the year 620 B.C. There we got it there. Thank you, guys. When he was about 11 years old, the age of, well, maybe most of you are gone to the children's part now, his, um, the, the, the king of his country was the king named Josiah. Josiah was a very godly and good king. Josiah was one of those few people, maybe the only one in the history of all of Israel, who was good, great, and godly. He may be the only one. He was a good king. So during the formative years of Daniel's life, he was under the rule of a good and godly king. But when Josiah the king was in his early 30s, he went to battle against the Egyptians and he was killed. And so Josiah was succeeded by one of his sons by the name of Jehoiakim. And while Jehoiakim was on the throne, and Jehoiakim was a mess of a person. He was a very ungodly man. Josiah, the godly king, had, a very, he had very ungodly sons. This one was very ungodly. And so Nebuchadnezzar, who was not yet king, he was the general of the Babylonian army, came into Jerusalem or into the surrounding area, conquered the towns around Jerusalem, and took the objects from the temple in Jerusalem back to Babylon and put them into the temple of his gods in Babylon. That's what people did back then. If you conquered a country, you went into their temple, you took the objects from their temple, which would have been made out of gold, statues, um, basins, altars, all of that. They took that back to their their country and put it into their temple and basically what they're saying nah 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 our God is greater than your God that's what they said so that's what Nebuchadnezzar did while Daniel is a young man but you see the phrase says booty and hostages Daniel was one of the hostages taken in 605 BC by hostages I mean this Babylon did this to conquered peoples. When they conquered a people, they went to every village and said, who has the highest SAT scores? <laughs> Not quite, but that's exactly what they did. Who are the smartest people in your town? And then they kidnapped the smartest people in every town and took them to Babylon to re-educate them or brainwash them. We're going to see what they did in a few minutes. That was their policy. Now that's very different than the Assyrian policy. The Assyrians had captured the northern part of Israel, and the Assyrians were brutal. Do you know where the headquarters of Assyria was? Nineveh. And do you know what Nineveh is called today? Mosul. And do you know who occupies Mosul today? ISIS. And you know what ISIS is doing today? The same thing the Assyrians did 2,700 years ago, cutting off people's heads. 
We know because we don't have pictures. They didn't have pictures back then, but they did it much more permanently. They made stone reliefs, and we have stone reliefs of the Assyrians taking Jewish people, putting hooks through their jaws, and dragging them to Assyria. This is how they conquered. Once they conquered your country, they brutalized you, they cut off your heads, they put iron in your body, telling you, if you ever rebel, we're going to kill you. We're going to torture you. And so people were afraid of them. But the Babylonians didn't do that. They said, we've got a better way. We're going to take your best students while they're young, kidnap them, take them to our country, and re-educate them, and then we're going to use them against you. That's what they did. And who's the test case? Daniel. Now, they took the A students in 605. Nebuchadnezzar came back again in 597, and they took the B students. The B students included Ezekiel. He was taken in the second deportation. And then in 586, they came back a third time, and they took the C students. And everyone else, they destroyed the whole city of Jerusalem and took everybody into captivity. But Daniel went in the first wave, and their policy was, we'll take the best and the brightest, we'll brainwash them, and then we're going to use them to rule their own people for us. And Daniel's their test case. He is the A student. This is how the book of Daniel begins. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and one of the things Daniel does, and I've said it many times, I will say it until I leave this church, the Bible is primarily a book of history. It's a book that tells us what God did in history, on land. I despise, quite honestly, some other religions that I know something about because they are not based on anything except somebody's dreams. There's no way to substantiate them as being right or wrong because it's somebody said, hey, I had a dream. Well, who cares? The beauty of Christianity is that it's linked not to mystery, but to history. And you can either deny it or you can study it historically. And when you do, you find it's stunningly historical. Our faith is based on what God did in history. Jesus is a historical person who really died on a cross for our sins, who really walked out of a grave, who really ascended to heaven. It's not somebody saying, well, I'm a prophet and I heard from God. Well, anyone can say that. And lots of people do. Ours is a book of history. Daniel is a book of history. Of course it's got prophecies, but it's mainly linked to real people who really lived here. So now in the third year of Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into, whose, into his hand. Whose side is God on? Whose side is God on? Which side is he fighting for? What side is God on? Who's he fighting for? Are you afraid to say it? God is fighting for the Babylonians against the Jewish people. God delivered Jehoiakim into his hand. God is on the Babylonian side. Sort of. 
He's ultimately and always on the side of his people. But he's going to now use the Babylonians to change God's people, the Jews. Along with some of the articles from the temple of God, these he carried off to the temple of his God, Marduk, in Babylon, and put in the treasure houses of his God. So that's what, what Nebuchadnezzar did. And now Daniel and his friends are going to be put into a country 900 miles from home that has a different language, a different culture, a different religion, and they're going to be socialized. Socialized means that they're going to be pressured to take on the characteristics of the culture in which they live. And this is a pagan culture. They do not believe in the God of Israel. They have a whole bunch of gods that they believe in, the moon god and Venus and, and all kinds of other practices they had. Now they're going to try to socialize Daniel into their culture. And it's going to be intense. Here's what the Bible says. In 605, this is not the Bible yet, in 605, Daniel and his companions were taken to Babylon as captives. And here's, and they're going to be given a royal education in Babylon. And then upon completion of their studies, they're going to be tapped to serve in the upper echelons of the King Nebuchadnezzar's government. They're going to be civil servants. But they're going to be Jews who are now at the upper echelons of the Babylonian government in order to make sure that the Jewish people obey the Babylonians. That's their task. That's what they're going to do. So let's see what happens. Here's the Bible. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, I don't know if you saw, as I read that, the kind of pressure that's going to be exerted on these young men. Remember, they're 15 years old. They're taken from their homeland to another country 900 miles away. It took about four months to walk there and a totally new world I suppose some of you here are about 15 years of age. Can you imagine if some of the following happened to you? Let's see what happened. Here's the pressure they faced. First of all, these were troubled times. Um, this was a time in the history of the world when empires were changing. The Assyrians and the Egyptians had ruled the world for many years, but now there were new superpowers on the horizon. The the um, Babylonians and the Persians. There was a shift of world powers. And whenever there's a shift of world powers, there's often a shift in people's worldview. So first of all, these were troubled times. Then, there were very few good role models. Among the Jewish people, the kings were horribly, ungodly, evil people. 
There were very few prophets in Israel. There were hardly anyone who followed God. There was hardly anyone who knew the Bible. There were no good role models. Sounds like America or something like that. It was a time of political upheaval. The kings that had, the, the, the dynasty that had been placed since the time of David was coming to an end. It was the end of the divided kingdom. There was a great deal of political upheaval. There, there was a culture in which the politics were changing. Now these people who had once had independence were going to be subjugated to a much superior power, the Babylonians. And when there are times of political upheaval, usually people are more susceptible to having their worldview altered. Then there was a religious decline. The people in Israel at the time of Daniel were not people who were following God at all. Religion was on the decline, not the incline. And if you know anything about the United States of America, Christianity in America is on the decline, just like it was for the people of Daniel's day. Then the people were disappointed with God. In that society, if you believed that your society was strong because of your gods, what do you think if your God has just been defeated, your articles of worship have just been carried off and put into a foreign temple somewhere? What does that mean? That means your God is a wimp. And when you think that your God is a wimp and other gods have taken all of the things that you hold dear, you become disappointed with God and you say, well, where is God when we needed him? What they didn't know is, God was on the side of the Babylonians, not the side of the Jews at this point in their history. God was behind this. So now they're disappointed with God. And when you are disappointed with God, you think God is not coming through for you, it's very easy for you to adopt a secular worldview. Then they were uprooted from their home. Everything was different. The climate was different. The culture was different. The language was different. The arts were different. The city was different. Everything was different. It'd be like you going from living in Sheridan, Wyoming, and being transported to live in New York City, Manhattan, and a change much, much greater than that, as we'll see in a minute. And they're youthful. If you want to brainwash somebody, you don't pick me. You don't brainwash people like me. Why? We're already stupid enough. And we're not going to change our ways. You will never find a culture in the history of the world that chooses older people to brainwash. You always take youth. Why? Well, because they know everything. They think they know everything. And when someone thinks they know everything, they're the easiest person to brainwash. And so all societies throughout all time and all history always seek to brainwash the youth. And Daniel's only 15 years old. So now his youthfulness will you be used against him. But it's much worse. He has some unfair disadvantages. Be careful of this one. James Dobson, who you probably know from Focus on the Family, some years ago wrote a book called Hide and Seek. And he said, in the United States of America, there are three qualities that we honor and give people who have these things perks they never deserve. And here are our three. Handsome appearance, intelligence, and athletic ability. You know what it's like your schools. 
If you have athletic, great athletic ability, you get a few perks that other people don't get. If you are pretty or handsome, which has nothing to do with you, you were born that way, you were given genes, you get perks that other people do not get. But those perks will soon go to your head and you will compromise a lot to retain them. So Daniel, did you see what the Bible said? Daniel was? What did he look like? He was handsome. What was he like intellectually? Very intelligent. A student. And I suppose he was physically very fit. We're going to find out about that in a minute. Those are disadvantages. I should say, if you want to brainwash a person, you want a person who is attractive, intelligent, and athletically skilled because they don't want to lose their perks. You can, they will compromise more readily to keep what they've got. And Daniel's got that, so he's in a bad position to hold his own. Then he lives in beguiling Babylon. The walls of Babylon, there were four walls of Babylon. The highest wall was seven stories high. The, uh, one of the walls of Babylon was so wide, this is the wall, that four chariots could ride abreast on top of the wall. It's like a, a four-lane superhighway around the city. Babylon had the hanging towers, uh, the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the wonders of the ancient world. It had a great river running right through the city, the, the Euphrates River. The, the walls of Nebuchadnezzar's palace were about as wide as this whole building. The walls. Can you imagine penetrating that? It was the most beautiful city in the world. When Alexander the Great, some years later, came to Babylon, he never wanted to go back to Athens because it was such a dump next to Babylon. This is the greatest city in the world. Now, what happens when you, the first time from Sheridan, you go to New York City and you get there, you get off the subway, and you go... You've never seen anything that tall in all your life. It looks like the buildings are falling on on you. You're just awed by the city. That's what Babylon was like. The most beautiful city in the whole world, by far. And now he's there. And by the way, just last year, I was in Berlin, and the Ishtar gates, the very gates through which Daniel went, I saw them. They're so beautiful, it's unbelievable. They're in the museum, the Pergamum Museum. They have these um, lions and dragons. They're three-dimensional. It's unbelievably beautiful. Daniel saw those every day. Beguilingly beautiful art. That's a way to get people to compromise. And then he had an Ivy League education. The top education you could get in all of Babylon from the best professors. And then... He was now immersed in the Babylonian language and literature. The language would have been Akkadian, and the literature was mainly songs and stories about the gods of Babylon. And then they were wined and dined. They say the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. It's always worked. You want to brainwash somebody? You don't give them lousy food. You give them good food. And that's what they tried to do. And then, the ultimate, they changed their name. See, when you change somebody's name, you change their identity. And do you know how they changed their names? Here it is. Daniel's name in Hebrew means, God is my judge. 
and they changed his name to Bel. That's one of the, 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 the gods of Babylon. Bel, protect my life. Hananiah's name means the Lord has been gracious to me. And they changed him's name to say, I worship the moon god. Can you imagine if your name, you have a good biblical name, and now they change your name, I worship the, good, the moon god. Everywhere you go, what's your name? I worship the moon god. These are Hebrews. These are Jews. They don't worship the moon god, but that's how they changed their name. Mishael means in Hebrew, who is what God is. And this is how they changed his name. Venus is my goddess. Can you imagine? You go out in society, you go to Sheridan College, and someone says, what's your name? Oh, Venus is my goddess. That's my name. You go, really? Yeah, that's his new name. That's what his name means. Venus is my goddess. And then Abednego, or Azariah, that means God is my help. And here's what they changed his name to. I am a servant of Nabu, one of their gods. Can you imagine? What if you had to face this? What if you were taken from your country, from your language, from your people, from your family, from everything you knew? Everything of your past was stripped away from you. Everything. You were put into the most beguiling city in the world. They wined and dined you. They changed your name. They changed everything. And they immersed you in the language and the literature of the gods of this new country. And they prohibited you from knowing anything about your past. What would you do? What would I do? Well, I know what we'd do. We'd cave in. But not Daniel. Daniel is no ordinary person. He's going to take a stand. Here's what the Bible says. But Daniel resolved... He's 15. He's not some old, wise guy. He's a 15-year-old. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. By the way, their food, their meat, and their wine would have been offered before they ate it to the gods of Babylon. Daniel says, I'm not going to do that. And he asked permission for the, of the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than all these other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please, Test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. So how did Daniel and his friends resist this incredible pressure to be conformed to the society of Babylon? How did they do it? Let's see. The first thing is that Daniel had deep biblical roots. Daniel's Jewish. That means when he was eight days old, he was circumcised as a child of the covenant of God. He grew up during the time of the, of the, um, 
of the revival under Josiah, when God's people actually had the law of God, when they followed the law of God. He's part of the royal family. He's part of the nobility. So he would have been well-schooled in the word of God. So he had deep biblical roots. And we're going to see later in the book how well he knows his Old Testament, especially the prophet Jeremiah. So Daniel, first of all, had deep biblical roots. And by the way, one of the strengths of this church that I hope gets much, much stronger and never wanes is the deep biblical roots we give to our children, both at home and by this church. You can't imagine what good that will bring to people's lives down the road. Deep biblical roots. And then they had a supportive peer group. The Bible does not say Daniel stood alone and did whatever he did. It says Daniel was there with his brothers, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The four of these guys had each other's backs. They stood with each other face to face, held each other com accountable. They stood shoulder to shoulder with each other. They're going to walk together. They had each other's back. You don't, you're, you're going to cave to a culture unless you have a supportive, strong godly peer group and it doesn't take many it only takes a few i know from my children you don't have to in a, in a secular setting like maybe the high schools or middle schools here of sheridan you don't need many you don't need everybody to tell you how cute and wonderful and good you are you just need one or two buddies or, or, or girls that stand with you and stand strong with you and you're committed to each other and you walk together a supportive peer group and then he had personal conviction. Do you see what, remember what the Bible said? Daniel resolved. He took a stand. He made a decision that he was going to act on. And then it was a strategic stand. He could have said, I'm not going to attend literature classes because I'm not going to memorize hymns to Naboo. Or I'm not going to go into a sociology class and learn how to worship Venus. I'm not going to do that. Or I'm not going to learn how to examine sheep livers to determine the future. That's what they were doing then. He was trained in examining sheep livers to determine the future. That's what Daniel was trained in divination. He could have said, I, I don't believe in that. I'm not going to do that. He didn't do that. He was in class. He went to anatomy classes. He went to his music classes. He went to his sociology classes. He went to his psychology. He went to his religion classes. But he said, this is where I will take my stand. I will not defile myself with food, because I'm a Jew. And God has told us what we can and cannot eat. And I choose to take my stand here. But how did he take his stand? R-E-S-P-E-C-T. He did not say, I'm Jewish, I'm not eating that junk. He said, please, please, can I make a modest proposal? Would you allow us just to eat vegetables and water for a period of time, just for 10 days, and see what God does? And, and the, the man in charge says, no, I'll, the king will have my head. If you come out gaunt and everyone else looks fat and happy. Daniel says, just 10 days. Trust God. Respect. And then the Bible said, God gave them favor in the eyes of the man who was their overseer. They had God's favor. And then they pursued. They worked hard. In all of their studies, and God caused them to prosper. Well, it ends with their impact. So at the end of the 10 days, they look healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. 
So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. By the way, my children went off and all of my kids went to public high schools and schools and they would ask me, Dad, what we're taught in school, some of it does not agree with the Bible. What do we do? And I would always tell my children, Oh, learn it as well as you possibly can. Get an A in it. Why? All, God, all truth is God's truth. We're not going to be able to stand for God if we don't understand what is being taught. We need to understand it. And they did. That's the best way you can refute things, when you truly understand them. And so learn it. Daniel learned it. He understood visions and dreams of all kind. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to the most powerful person in the world. Can you imagine? Now 18 years old, Daniel is now sitting in the presence in, one, in the most beautiful palace in the world, one of the most beautiful in the history of the world, before the most powerful man of the world, and the king is stunned. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there for the next several decades till the time of Cyrus. So what resulted from the, 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 the stand he took? God blessed them physically. He caused the people around him who did not believe in the God of Israel to have their curiosity piqued. Intellectually, they were better, smarter than any of the other people that they went to school with. Spiritually, they had an incredible impact because they stood for God and God saw that they had a, the people saw that they had a different spirit. Then Daniel is now going to be instrumental in leading Nebuchadnezzar to the living God. Nebuchadnezzar is going to be in heaven someday because of Daniel. They had an impact on the whole society, and that impact act lasted for decades. That's the impact that they had. Why? Because they dared to take a stand. And now us. We live in a culture that's increasingly secularized, in which the pressure for us to conform to its worldview and lifestyle is intense. And some of that worldview and lifestyle is good. It's okay. But some of it is not. What are you going to do? Put your head in the sand? No. Separate and form some little isolated community? No. Capitulate to the culture and just do what everyone else does? No. Dare to be a Daniel. When I was a child in Sunday school, I learned a song. Maybe you learned it too. If you did, you can sing with me and don't let me sing a solo. Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. That's a little simple Sunday school song, but it's incredibly profound. And if we could do this, God only knows what good could break out in Sheridan, Wyoming. If we could dare to be like Daniel, even dare to do so by ourselves, with a small godly peer group, 
dare because we have a purpose that's firm. And we're not afraid to make it known. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I, I'm stunned by Daniel. A man of this kind of character and strength is just awesome. The pressure he faced and the dignity with which he resisted is stunning. Oh, may we, may we as a body of believers be like Daniel. May we dare to follow you and to stand alone if we must and to make you known. That's a big prayer. And ask that your Holy Spirit would empower us to do so in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand with me. Now as you go today, may the Lord bless you, keep you, strengthen you, give you wisdom, and enable you not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed so you may prove what God's will for your life is. All in the name of Jesus. God bless you.